welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these cataloged, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. I hope everyone is doing well. Thank you for tuning in again. It's very common in our gatherings, in our culture as Muslims, we hear this phrase that Islam is valid for all time and all places. And this is true. This is a true statement of belief, that this is one of our articles of belief, that we believe that our religion is valid for all times and all places. But what we need to remember when we say that, equally important, if not more important, is that we, meaning the people that are alive now, whenever the now is, we have to pass on this religion to the generation after us in order for that belief to continue. So implied in that statement is there there's some sort of passing on of the religion. And this is the principle that I want to talk about today. And this is something that I'm really, really passionate about. Personally, it's something that motivated me to study the Islamic sciences in the first place. It's something that motivates me every day, whether I'm teaching or preaching or writing interacting with people. It's something that's always front and center in my mind. I want to be able to be one tool amongst many, many, you know, inshallah, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of tools that are used on a daily basis to transmit this religion from generation to generation in its pristine way. And that's what I want to talk about. Now, this, the reason it's a meta principle and the reason I want to discuss it in this series of principles, of first principles, is that in order for us to do that, we need to be able to step back away from the subtle differences 
that we usually find ourselves surrounded with in our daily practice of Islam. And what I mean by that is that there are little differences. I call them little differences. Uh, Malikis pray this way, the Shafi'is pray that way. Uh, this mujtahid imam opinion on this issue of zakah was this, but this mujtahid's imam opinion on this issue was that. All of that's under the rubric of, of our faith. That's that's the, 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 the celebration of the plurality of our faith. Now, we're not all going to follow all of those opinions equally at the same time, nor will we necessarily know them all. But you need to step way back beyond, you know, f- and, and, and distance yourself from those type of differences to understand this principle that I'm talking about. When we talk about transmitting, transferring, passing on this religion from generation to generation, we have to abide by the highest, most principles, the principles that everyone agrees on. And to be able to do that, and to be able to abstract away from those differences, those minor differences, those small differences, we need to unlock the code of understanding of our tradition. And that's really the the main underlying theme of this episode, is how do we unlock that code? What do I mean by that? Why am I using the word code? Is there a secret? Is something hidden? It's not necessarily a secret. It's not necessarily hidden. But one of the things that I'm assuming when I say that statement is that in the last, let us say, two, three, four hundred years, there has definitely been a influx of foreign understanding to what we would call traditional Sunni Islam. So what that means, and and this is not about modernity and, and all that kind of stuff, that's not what I mean. What I mean is the following, is that if you pick up a book from the classical Islamic period, now you might not be able to understand what's being said. You might understand the words and the sentences, but you're not going to understand the code that these people use. In other words, you will not understand the paradigm that these people spoke from. Because now we have competing paradigms that we might find ourselves a part of, uh, being English-speaking Muslims, living maybe in a non-Muslim majority country, or just being modern people in general, we might not understand some of the underlying principles by which these people wrote, thought, and therefore acted out their faith. And that's the key right there, is knowing what that code is. So what I want to do is I want to go through four subjects or four disciplines that can help us understand what that code is. The first one is logic. Now, it was very, very standard that if you were a student of knowledge and you were studying whatever you wanted to end up you know, uh, specializing in, in the very beginning, with your training in language and grammar, one of the basic things that you would have studied is logic. And Islamic logic, mantiq, is a support science. We call it alum al-musa'adah. It's a support science. It's not a core discipline. And it is essentially based on Greek logic or our Muslims' understanding of the important parts of Greek logic that are important for us to understand. Now, if you don't study Islamic logic and understand the basic principles of how Muslim scholars of all disciplines thought about the world around them, the, the perceived world around them, it will be very difficult f- for you to make sense of 
their positions of theology, their discussions of philosophy, their, how they adjudicate cases in court, how they engage in ijtihad, etc. The fact that there are uh, their belief in, in bodies and accidents and the difference between the body and the accident and the different types of uh, conditions that you know uh, re- re- are resorted to the body uh, versus the accident. accident. All, all these logical t- the terms that you find in logic, if you don't understand that, then you're not going to understand those writings. So that's a key tool, a key code breaker t- to understanding our past. I do not mean by that that Islamic logic and the basic you know, logic books, which by the way are very, very thin books. I mean, I'm not talking about, you can study with a teacher in a few weeks a, a whole text of Islamic logic, a month at the, at the most. I'm not saying that that's all there is uh, to be said about logic. What I'm saying is that if you don't understand that, then you won't understand how the people in the past wrote and thought. That's what I mean. That's why it's important. So I'm not trying to be um, look. I'm not trying to look backwards and not live in in the modern world. I, I'm saying the exact opposite. To do to, to live in the modern world copacetically with our tradition, we need to understand our tradition. And there are hurdles to understanding our tradition because there are some distances. One of those distances is we've lost that study of logic. And I remember when I studied logic. It was to be, I mean, this was my personal experience, not the most exciting science to study. A lot, a lot of it just seemed logical. In other words, it was sort of, well, of course, I understand that. But when I did the whole thing, and then I would go back and, and reread some of the things that I studied, I'm like, oh, wow. This, 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 the language of the logicians is, throughout, is, is peppered throughout our literature. So it's very, very important that we study logic. It's very important that that becomes one of the main things that students are exposed to in order to understand the code of how the tradition is discussed. Another one, another example, and I'm just giving these four examples. I'm not saying this is the be-all and end-all. Again, these are just short episodes to sort of get us thinking about these principles. The second subject, support subject, is what is traditionally called ilmul hay'a, or... Uh, you know, the geology, uh, the movement of the stars, astronomy, geology, our version of that. And the reason that this was an important science, and still is an important science, by the way, is because it's the science that we use, it's the discipline that we use to help us determine the direction of the Qibla and the timings of our prayers, of our daily prayers, and the beginnings and endings of the lunar months. Now, this is just a science. I mean, there's no, um, this is not necessarily a madhab issue unless one of the madhabs have different timings for the different starts of the prayers or something like that. But at least when it comes to the qibla, I mean, there's no difference. You have to face Mecca when you pray. The direction of prayer is Mecca for all Muslims of all sects. And the beginning and the ends of the lunar months are the beginning and the ends of the lunar months. I mean, that's not too difficult. So this is a, you know, beyond the madhab type of of discipline but it's something that was studied all the time and of course there were experts like in any science just like we just said logic there were logicians you know there were people that that was their expert and they go they went really deep same thing with this type of science but at the same time you know your average muslim had some sense of understanding of how to figure out these things and if you understand that you will understand because what, there's nothing that's 
more essential to our practice of our faith than the prayer, five times a day. So washing for prayer and then therefore facing the correct direction for prayer and knowing when the prayer time has come in, it's something that is completely, it surrounds us on a daily basis, at least five times a day. So therefore that brings up questions the apps that we use, the compass that we have, the directions that we follow, uh, if the local mosque's timings for the different prayers, all of those type of issues are related to this subject matter. And the Muslims traditionally had a, a, spe- a certain way of approaching this science, how they related the revealed text, the Qur'an and the Sunnah, to the observable observations around them, the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars and things like that, the the observance of light and the new moon, things like that. They had a certain rhyme and reason into how they did that. So again, being able to unlock this code will help us understand large parts of our tradition. And because, unfortunately, we really don't have that and people just rely on their apps. I, I mean, most people probably just, even to figure out the Qibla, use the Qibla function in the app on their phone. I mean, I even know for my children that they might not necessarily have, know how to use a compass. And in a couple of generations, they, they might look at a compass and even not know what that is. So knowing these things being sort of connected to the natural world around us is is what this support discipline is all about and that's one of the the, the key codes another key code a code breaker in in our accessing not just our tradition but in, in therefore in being able to transmit transfer pass on this religion to our, to the those after us is the study of numismatics and I know this might sound really, really strange. You know, what does this have to do with Islam? And numismatics is the uh, discipline, the study of money. And the reason this is important is because if you read any any classical, you know, understanding or literature of Islam, whether it be from books of jurisprudence to even A Thousand and One Nights, you know, the, the, the famous tales of A Thousand and One Nights, you're going to come across words like the dirham and the dinar. What does that mean? Where does that come from? How much does that weigh? How much, what does that look like? What's the relationship between that and current money? Money is now paper. Now money is digital. Uh, e-coins, uh, digital currency, cryptocurrency, blockchain. What does that have to do? So, so all of that, all of those questions and all of those possibilities for us to be able to address them. Again, like we said in the beginning, if we believe as I'm assuming most of us do, that Islam is valid for all time and places and circumstance, well, how does Islam answer or deal with this circumstance? We're gonna, we need to understand the, the, the essential conception of the Sharia to commerce, uh, the economy being based on the gold and silver uh, dinar and dirham, and therefore start to understand that. So, the study of money, numismatics, both in the past and the study of money now and the nature of money and currency now is very, very important to make sense of our traditional understanding of commerce and the economy and money and to also make that bridge between the past and now. And the fourth example I'll give, and I'm just giving four, there are obviously a lot more, but this will give you an idea the fourth example is the study of measurements, which is related to a little bit to numismatics, but difference. Here I'm saying, or what I mean by this, 
is the different, there are Sharia measurements. You'll read in the Hadith or you'll read in classical Islamic law, again, across the madhabs, you know that this, the distance between this and, and that is X number of, you know, and there'll be like an obscure word that, no, that you, you won't know, what does that mean? Or the weight of this or the volume of this is two of, and there'll be like a word like al-qulla. You know, what is a qulla? What is that? What is that volume? What does that mean? How do, how do I understand that now? And there are, bless them, ulama, that have actually gone through the trouble of digging out all of these terms or as many as they can find of these measure, sharia measurement terms and converting them into the metric equivalent. So you know, this is X number of meters or kilometers and this is X number of kilograms or grams or whatever the case may be. And again, you would be surprised how many rulings in the Sharia deal with the Islamic measurements, whether there be expiations or whether there be things you have to pay or whether they be distances you have to consider before certain acts can be done. Really, really important. And on this, I know it's a little geeky of me, but this is actually a subject that for some reason I'm very interested in. And I want to give you a very small, short personal story about this. I was uh, reviewing for a lesson I was going to give uh, in Shafi Fiqh to some students. And we were talking about the distance for uh, being allowed, the, tr the, the distance that a journey can be considered a travel and therefore would allow you to shorten your prayers. So in one of the books that I was reviewing, um, the author of the book or the commentary was an Egyptian scholar from the past. And he was saying the distance of travel that would allow is, and he, he named these two cities, uh, one city in the Delta and Cairo. He said, this is too short. But if it was the next city over, it would be okay. And, I, and, and when I read that, it was the first time I had come across that. And I said to myself, but I know when we go to that city, we always shorten our prayers. I was like, oh my God, was, have I been doing something wrong this whole time? So being very, very absent-minded, I went straight to Google Maps and I just uh, determined the city, the distance between the cities. And I found that the distance was actually the distance that would allow you to shorten your prayers. So I said, okay, so the, so the, the Google Map is telling me uh, that I can do this, that this is the, the distance is the distance for shortening the prayer but in the and i reread the sentence like 10 times but i say clearly in the book of fiqh he's saying you can't so i consulted with one of my teachers and he said well you're you're missing a huge point and that is that in the book of fiqh the the distance between cairo and that city in the delta was not the the same path that we take today now we have asphalt and we have roads and we have highways this was a different path this was following the nile so if you went by by horse or by carriage, uh, in the pre-modern world, by the Nile, yes, it wouldn't be the, the distance of travel. But now it is because of asphalt and, and, and roads. So that just goes to tell you, for me to make sense of that, and you can only th imagine the amount of, that's one very, very, very small example. You can only imagine how many things, therefore, we would have to determine when it comes to these measurements. So these four examples, the examples of logic, the examples of uh, geology slash astronomy, the example of numismatics and the example of measurements, these are things that we must master and must understand to be able to break the code of what our classical tradition is teaching and discussing 
so that we can make sense of that faith today and therefore allow us to, to transfer it. Because if we don't do that, then things can get lost, things can get misunderstood, mistakes will be made, like the mistake I just I, I was about to make with this distance of travel. I would have you know taught somebody the wrong piece of information, etc., etc., etc. So this is a, a principle. A, a first principle is that we're always in the mode of transmitting, transferring, explaining, passing on the religion. Because what we say now, somebody's going to listen to it eventually, whether it be our children, our neighbors, our friends, our family, students, whatever the case may be. And they're going to take that. When we're long gone, they're going to take that. I remember so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. And, and they're going to be, that's going to be the Islam that they're left with, plus what we have from our classical tradition that is passed down, whether they be things that have been memorized or books that have been published and continue to be reprinted, etc. That's going to be Islam. So to make sure that we're passing it on correctly, we need to always remember the code, the things that were written at that time, they're going to need their own code. Just like whatever we write now will also be biased by the way we think today, by the issues that we're talking about today, by the rhyme and reason that make up the paradigm of the modern mind. That also needs to be passed on as well. So people beyond us that might, be, that might inherit another paradigm altogether will also be able to understand our understanding of the understanding of those that came before us all the way back to the age of the Prophet, peace be upon him. I hope that makes sense. Something to think about. Again, something that I'm uh, really passionate about. I'm also currently working on a project that's uh, hopefully going to address this, and I hope to announce it uh, soon. I'll definitely keep everyone informed. And I'm going to leave it there for now, and I will see you all soon for the next principle. Take care. Uh -huh.